Well, good morning to you. Uh, it is a great day. It is a uh, super day in some ways. Uh, it's also Groundhog Day, so uh, lots to celebrate. Uh, we are spending our time in the book of Genesis right now. So if you have a Bible with you, I do want to invite you and encourage you to open it to Genesis chapter 14. Uh, we're continuing our study of this section of Genesis, uh, looking at the life and the faith of Abraham as we find it in chapters 12 to 25 of Genesis. Our series is called Between Promise and Fulfillment, and we're really spending our time in that in-between time here. Uh, We're going to look at all of chapter 14 today, and we're going to jump right into it this morning, so I'm going to go ahead and read it for you. This is God's Word, and this is what it says. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, And defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and of Anner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that the kins, his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back the kinsmen, his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the, at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Well, it's quite a chapter, isn't it? Um, I think most of us read a chapter like that and we wonder, well, what on earth are we supposed to do with this? At first blush, it just seems like one of those passages filled with names and places that we don't recognize. I mean, we know Abram and Lot. Maybe we've heard of Melchizedek. We've probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. But beyond that, we might wonder what value this passage has in bettering our understanding of God or bettering our understanding of our world or bettering our understanding of our lives. Well, I entitled this message, Kingdoms in Conflict, and that is a better title than you realize. Uh, That's my humble brag for this morning, or for the day. Uh, When you hear that title, you might think, well, that's kind of fitting, I guess, because the first half of this chapter is about a series of kingdoms or a number of kingdoms in conflict. I mean, you got these five southern kings and they are rebelling against their overlords and then they are defeated by these four more powerful kings and their armies. So these were kingdoms in conflict. But I want to say that the kingdoms that are in conflict in this chapter are not the ones you might think. There are really two kingdoms in conflict in this chapter and in the world at large. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of man. And the events of this chapter are a microcosm of the conflict that has been in place since the beginning of time. So way back in the 5th century, Augustine wrote a book entitled The City of God. And what Augustine argued in that book was basically that from the beginning of time, or at least from the beginning of time, after the Garden of Eden, there have been two rival kingdoms in the world. One is the city of man. It is built by man for man's own glory. It's seen in the various kingdoms that have been established throughout history. It's really a secular enterprise. God has no place in it. The city of God is different. It is built by God and for God's glory. It's inhabited by God's people. It's filled with God's blessings. And there is a contrast and a conflict between these two rival cities or these two rival kingdoms. And so I've framed my message around that idea of kingdoms in conflict. And I want to draw your attention to four things that we learn about the differences between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And the first thing we should see here is that the kingdom of man is often consumed with petty squabbles or petty conflicts. Now that this chapter is about kings and kingdoms is not all that hard to discern. The word king appears 28 times in this chapter. And the early part of the chapter describes a common occurrence in ancient times. Now, all these nations that are listed here or described here are small or were small by modern comparison, but each one of them was trying to assert its authority and establish its autonomy, its right to rule. And the passage tells us that Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemeber, the king of Zeboim, and the unnamed king of Bela grew tired with the status quo. 
So verse 4 says, 12 years they had served Keterleomer, but in the 13th year there they rebelled. Now, as you keep reading, you find that their rebellion is quashed. The northern kings also join forces, and they've got more power, and so they defeat these who are rebelling. They assert their authority again. And this is actually the first war that is described in the Bible. But in one sense, what is described here is simply what has been repeated countless times throughout world history. History, in some sense at least, is a game of thrones, right? It is a battle or it is a competition about who gets to be on top, who gets to rule over who. And nations are constantly jockeying for position and power and resources and land. Who's in control? This continues today. Now, this map is a couple years old. It's from 2017, but it illustrates the more than 40 active conflicts in the world today. See, this is what happens in the kingdom of man. It's often consumed with these kinds of conflicts. Now, when I say that the kingdom of man is preoccupied with petty squabbles, I don't mean that any of these conflicts are inconsequential or that the lives that are lost in those conflicts don't matter. What I mean is that the kingdoms of man don't last. They're fragile and temporary at the best of times. So Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Rome all took their turns as the superpowers of their day. But none of them are what they were. The kingdoms of man come and go. And much, if you've read through the Bible, then you know that much of biblical history takes place or took place within those empires. But it's amazing how little the biblical narrative is concerned with who's ruling in the kingdom of man. The Bible's focus is on the kingdom of God. The most startling example of that can be seen at the time of Jesus' birth and ministry. I want you to listen to this almost comical description from Luke chapter 3. We read there, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And then the last line is almost like a punchline. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I mean, do you notice that God's attention is on something completely different than what we might expect? I mean, there are Caesars and governors and tetrarchs and high priests And the word of God comes to John the Baptist in the wilderness of all places. In the same way, when we read this chapter, we need to make sure that we don't read it the wrong way. This chapter is not about Abraham's one shining moment or his 15 minutes of fame, the time that he got to appear on the big stage with all the movers and shakers of his day, all of these kings. In fact, the opposite is true. The movers and shakers, the kings of the day, are only mentioned in passing, and they're only mentioned because their lives happened to intersect with the life of Abram, where God's attention is focused. 
Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis summarizes this well when he says this. He says, put in right perspective, Keterleomer and Amraphel and Washington, D.C. and Putin and Beijing and the Pentagon and the United Nations are merely the background of the story. God's premier attention is ever on Abraham's family. Though they don't make People magazine or the evening news, God's mind and his story always seem focused on wherever his people are. So what matters is what happens among Abram's family. That's how we ought to understand and read this chapter. Now, we need to understand this. I mean, we need to know that while the world's attention might be fixated on what's happening at the Super Bowl today, go Chiefs, or at the halftime show, or at the Grammys last week, or by the red carpet appearances, at the various Hollywood award shows, who's wearing what designer, who showed up with whom, who's making what political statement. The Bible's perspective on all of that is, who cares? And Dale Rolf Davis goes on to say this, what counts is when a father who belongs to Abram's seed sits down on the edge of his eight-year-old's bed goes over a shorter catechism question and answer with him, illustrates and explains the answer, and then prays with the lad before he puts him to bed. What matters is when two or three of Abram's daughters meet together in one of their kitchens to intercede for friends and neighbors. What matters is when a Christian puts in a solid day's work. What's significant is when one of Abram's sons spends 20 hours studying and agonizing over a biblical text and then on Sunday morning stands up and preaches it to 35 people. Or when a Christian mother spanks her four-year-old for disobedience and then a few moments later takes her on her knee and prays for her. See, that's what's actually significant. What's happening in the lives of Abram's offspring, his people? And this has implications for how we live. The most important thing about your life is not how far you advance in your career. It's not how large your investment account grows. It's not how much you're applauded in the kingdom of man. What matters most is your faithfulness in the kingdom of God. That's where God's focus is. Second thing we learn in this chapter is that it's hard to live in the kingdom of man without getting swept up in its conflicts. So as we read through the passage, we find that, you know, these southern kings want to rebel. The northern kings gather together or form an alliance. They win the battle. And then we read this in verses 11 and 12 as sort of the fallout from it. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. So Lot is taken prisoner or kidnapped. Now, Lot's an interesting character as we read through this entire section from Genesis 12 to Genesis 19. We know he's Abram's nephew. He tagged along with him when Abram set out on his adventure and left Ur of the Chaldeans. But what are we supposed to think about Lot? Is he a a sympathetic figure? Is he just an innocent bystander? All it says here is that he was taken captive. 
Now, last week, Sean led you in a study of chapter 13, and there we saw that Lot seemed like a man who was set on living his best life now. And if you are here, then you will remember that the drama of chapter 13 is centered around the fact that the land could not support both Abraham and his possessions and Lot and his possessions, so the two of them decided they had to part company. And rather than deferring to his elder, Lot chose the best land for himself. And it says that he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, it's not clear exactly how much time has passed between chapter 13 and chapter 14, but now Lot finds himself in trouble. He's been caught up in this conflict in the kingdom of man. Now, was that his fault? Did he just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? How are we supposed to view Lot? Well, I'll tell you how I view him, and I'm going to try to help you see it by giving you a golf analogy, because I know there's like two or three of you who will kind of track along with that. But if you were to list the best golfers in the world over the last 25 years, you would have to put Phil Mickelson near the top of that list. He has 44 victories on the PGA Tour. He's finished in second place another 36 times. He's won five major championships. He's earned more than $90 million in prize money. And he has a reputation of having one of the best short games ever. And some time ago, I was listening to these golf commentators who were talking about his uncanny ability to hit these amazing shots out of bunkers, under bushes, over trees. And then one of them, with his great English deadpan delivery added, I suppose it would be better if he didn't get himself into all that trouble in the first place. That's how I see Lot. It would be a lot better if he didn't get himself into all that trouble in the first place. I mean, we're not told directly that Lot shouldn't have moved to Sodom, but as you read this entire section from chapter 12 to chapter 19, when Abram has to rescue Lot all over again, it seems like he just has a knack for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's often caught up in the petty squabbles in the kingdom of man. Now, last week, when Sean was leading you in the study of chapter 13, he read for you a quote that I think seems like a fair description of him. That quote said, Lot was the kind of man who would certainly choose heaven over hell if given the choice, but not heaven over earth, right? So Lot has now become a resident of Sodom. And when we get to chapter 19, we will see that he seems to have occupied a prominent place in the city. In that chapter, we're told that he sits at the gate of the city, which is where the elders of the cities would normally sit. So I think at the very least, we can say that he was quite at home in the kingdom of man. He was quite comfortable there. And I would just say that it's hard to live in the kingdom of man without getting swept up in its troubles or its conflicts, its concerns. Now, I know we all like to think that we're above being influenced by our surroundings, but the kingdom of man has a way of seeping into our pores. A few years back, we studied the book of Judges together. That book chronicles what happened to the Israelites after they entered the promised land, the land of Canaan that they were looking forward to at this point. 
And what we saw throughout that entire book from beginning to end is a process that I called the canonization of Israel. That is to say that the Israelites looked a lot more like the Canaanites by the end of the book. It just kind of happened over time. They adopted their values. And this, instead of looking like the distinct people of God, they just looked like the culture around them. And this is what happened to Lot as well. And this is what happens to so many of us. Now, Jesus tells us we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So we aren't supposed to separate ourselves into a holy huddle, but we're also not supposed to uncritically adopt the values of our culture. Listen, if we're not careful, we can easily end up consumed with all the same things our culture is consumed with, the kingdom of man stuff. And that's why Jesus tells us not to worry about those things, but instead to seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. See, we have a different calling. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. We take our marching orders from a different commander. And the Apostle Paul uses a military analogy to help us understand what this is supposed to look like. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So that verse is not telling us, hey look, don't be involved in the world but that we need to be extremely careful not to get entangled in things that are secondary. Sometimes we make decisions to get involved in things uncritically, and before we know it, we end up caught up, consumed with all the same things our culture is consumed with. It's hard to live in the kingdom of man and not be swept up in its troubles. It's hard, but it's not impossible. And Abram serves as an example for us or a model for us. Abram is on a mission from God. God has called him and said, you're to bring a universal blessing to the world. Now his nephew Lot finds himself in trouble and Abram steps in and rescues him. But as you get to the end of the chapter, you notice that Abram is really careful not to get himself entangled with the cast of characters that Lot has gotten entangled with. See, as Christians, the book of Galatians gives us this counsel. It says, brothers or brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then it says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, this is the, these are the waters we have to navigate constantly, right? We are to be involved, but we're not supposed to get entangled or consumed with things in the kingdom of man. There's a third thing this passage teaches us, which is that the two kingdoms are marked by completely different values. So as you read it, you find that the second half of the chapter or the final part of the chapter is taken up with these two kings who come out to meet Abram after his military victory. Now they both come out, they both make overtures toward him, and on the surface of it, that looks really similar. But when you look more closely, you will see that they they actually differ greatly. I think most of us have at least had some experience with imitations, right? Faux finishes, replicas, copycats, knockoffs, whatever you want to call it. We're all familiar with things that are meant to look like the real thing but aren't the real thing. 
And if you've done any traveling, international travel, then you will have seen this. If you visited any of the usual tourist haunts, you will be accosted by people who are wanting to sell you something, cheap imitations of expensive products, right? So instead of paying thousands of dollars for a genuine Rolex watch, you can pay just a mere couple hundred dollars for a watch that's designed to look like a Rolex watch at least to the untrained eye. Now, I'm not actually sure which is more foolish, paying thousands of dollars for a wristwatch or paying hundreds of dollars to make it look like you've paid thousands of dollars for a wristwatch, right? That's a, that's a different matter. But a few years back, I was in Turkey, and one of my traveling companions bought a replica watch off of a street vendor. And uh, later, by all appearances, it was, a, it was a really nice watch. I mean, it looked like the real thing. It was a chronograph watch, so it had all these dials on the face of it. And later that day, I said, well, how's the, how's the new watch working? He said, well, you know, one of the dials doesn't actually turn, except when I do this, and then it just kind of swings around freely. <laughs> See, the point for us as believers is to remember that Satan is a master of imitation. And we can and should expect to regularly be presented with something that looks like the real thing, but isn't. Sometimes things that look and sound the same aren't actually the same. So verses 13 to 16, they tell us about how Abram learned about Lot's capture, how he gathered all of his allies together, or the trained men in his household. He went out on this sort of covert military operation. He conquered them. He brought Lot and all the possessions back. And then we read about this exchange that he has with these two kings in verses 17 to 21. And I want to camp here for a bit. It says, After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And I want to say there's a world of difference between those two kings and what they offer him. These two kings represent two different kingdoms. And I don't mean that one represents the kingdom of Sodom and one represents the kingdom of Salem. I mean that one represents the kingdom of man and one represents the kingdom of God. Now, you might get some sense of that just by the names of the kingdoms. Sodom is the name of one of the the kingdoms. It has a reputation, to be sure. And this was true long before its destruction in chapter 19. So back in chapter 13, we read this, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Sodom represents the kingdom of man, not because of one particular sin, but because it was a people who were united in their rebellion against God. That's what the kingdom of man is. The other king who comes to meet Abram is Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem is a Hebrew word that means peace. So the the kingdom or the city that Melchizedek ruled over is probably what later became Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now that in itself doesn't tell us this represents the kingdom of God, but the figure Melchizedek certainly points us in that direction. So verse 18 again reads 
like this. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Melchizedek is identified as both king and priest of God Most High. His name, we're told, actually means king of righteousness. But again, it's not just the names that differentiate the two kingdoms. Notice the difference in the behavior of these two kings. The first words out of the mouth of Melchizedek are, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. And you can contrast that with the first words out of the mouth of the king of Sodom in verse 21. His first words aren't even a thank you. The first thing he says is, give me. That's part of the difference between these two kingdoms. One wants to bless, the other just wants to take. Now, Melchizedek himself is an interesting figure. I mean, he appears on the scene out of nowhere. He wasn't one of the five conquered kings. He wasn't one of the four conquering kings. He just shows up out of the blue with a bottle of wine and bread, offers it to Abram and pronounces a blessing on him. So who was he? Well, the New Testament sheds some light on this for us. The book of Hebrews in particular has a lot to say about Melchizedek. And listen to this description from chapter 7. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the, God, of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, there's lots of speculation about Melchizedek. Who was he? Some people think that his sudden appearance here is an example of the pre-incarnate, of a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I'm not sure that's quite right. I would say that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. That is to say that he points forward to Jesus. Other biblical writers refer to the eternal nature of his priesthood, that he's a priest forever. For the purposes of our look at this passage, I think the least we ought to see is that Melchizedek represents the kingdom of God. He's priest and king of God Most High. And Abraham shows himself to be aligned with that kingdom and part of that kingdom by accepting the gift and offering a gift to him. He is, in essence, declaring his allegiance to the kingdom of God. This ties in with the final thing we need to know, which is that at some point we have to decide which kingdom we belong to. See, at some point we have to decide between Salem and Sodom. We have to make a choice between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. This is what Abram did. So the king of Sodom makes his offer to Abram. He says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And then notice Abram's response in verses 22 and 23. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. It's an interesting decision, isn't it? 
I mean, it would seem like he, as the conquering hero, would have a right to whatever spoils were won in the battle. But Abram chooses to forego that right. Why? It's not like Abram is anti-wealth. I mean, God has promised to bless him, and no doubt, much of that blessing was material. We've seen that Abram wasn't against against accepting gifts from foreign kings. I mean, he takes the bread and wine offered by Melchizedek. He also left Egypt a lot richer than he came into Egypt with, right? I mean, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, had given him camels and donkeys and servants and all sorts of things. So he would accept a gift from a foreign king. Why does he refuse to do so here? Why does he flat out refuse to take anything from the king of Sodom? Well, the text does tell us, Abram says that it's because he's lifted up his hand to the Lord Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. And see, Abram seemed to recognize that there were strings attached to Sodom's offer, and he doesn't want to be in his debt in any way. Accepting his offer would have implied some type of servitude to the king of Sodom. And the declaration that Abram makes here is that the king of Sodom is not his ruler. The Lord is his ruler. That's who he's trusting in. He understands that there was a choice to be made between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. This was an either-or proposition, not a both-and proposition. Now, I think this is a hard word in our day. We don't like either-or options, right? We want both ends. We don't like exclusive commitments. We want to keep our options open. So you're no, no doubt familiar with the expression, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Right, when I was a kid, I was always confused by that. I did not understand. I was like, well, aren't I having my cake by eating it? Right, but that's not how the expression is using the word have. What it is is you can't keep your cake and eat it too. You can't do both, right? You can't go, oh, it's so nicely decorated. I'm going to keep that and sort of preserve it and also eat it at the same time. It's an either or decision you have to make. And this is how it is with the kingdom of God as well. We have to make a decision. Now, the word decide actually comes from a Latin root, which literally means to cut off. So when you make a decision, you are cutting off other options. This is what Abraham was doing here. He was declaring which kingdom he belonged to. He's not both the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. His allegiance lies with the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not one to pile on millennials, right? Not that often anyway. Barry Cooper wrote an article recently about a millennial tendency where millennials try to keep their options open when it comes to religious commitments. And he said this, we worship the God of open options and he's killing us. He kills our relationships because he tells us it's better not to become too involved He kills our service to others because he tells us it might be better to keep our weekends to ourselves. He kills our giving because he tells us these are uncertain financial times and you never know when you might need that money. He kills our joy in Christ because he tells us it's better not to be thought of as too spiritual. 
And then he says, what's most frightening about the God of open options, though, is that you may not even know that you're worshiping him because he pretends not to be a God at all. And listen, this is not just true for millennials. Lots of people worship the God of open options. They want to keep their options open. They don't like exclusive commitments. They don't like either or. But the Bible doesn't give us that option. I want you to listen to a sampling of how the Bible puts this either or proposition before us. When Joshua took over Israel's leadership from Moses, he addressed his people or address the people of his day by saying this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's how the prophet Elijah addressed the people of his generation. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. See, they they worshipped the God of open options as well. We don't want to make this exclusive commitment. But this is what we're called to do. At some point, we have to decide which kingdom are we in. Where does our allegiance lie? Does it lie with the kingdom of man and all of its enterprises? Or does it lie with the kingdom of God? Where are we going to throw our lot in? That's the choice that's put before us every day. So let's just pray that we be the right kind of kingdom people. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word, which just reveals things to us in different ways and sometimes through stories like this. And Lord, as we think about this decision that is put before us. God, I pray that we would be those who seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and we wait and allow you to add all those other things to us that we would not be caught up in the kingdom of man. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's kind of sitting on the fence and trying to decide which kingdom do they belong to, where does their allegiance lie? Lord, I pray you would clarify that in their own heart that they would see they need to make a choice and a commitment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.